welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Hi everyone and welcome to another DIFF podcast and today I am joined by Claire Smith who from working at the bar in her beloved Staley Bridge Celtics via the legal profession is now the People and Culture Director at the distribution giant MAB and Paul Adams who from a distinguished career in mainstream lending including Santander is now Sales Director at Pepper Money. And we have to all thank Paul Adams very much for his courage in doing this. Paul is going to be talking about his lived experience and for an industry that has much to celebrate and likes to celebrate a lot, his lived experience is one that needs to be listened to and paid attention to by everybody. And I'm, for one, I'm humbled and honoured that he has chosen this platform to talk to us about it. So, Paul, could I just hand over to you and in your own words, tell us what happened to you, what the issues were and what you went through. Yeah, of course, Barrett, thank you. And thanks for the opportunity. And I feel nervous, actually, because whilst I've talked about my story to a few close family members and colleagues, I'm not used to talking about it a lot. So if I ramble or waffle, then you just have to forgive me because that would just be nerves. But I suppose anybody who does know me, and hopefully there's a fair few out there that are listening, they'll know me as a, as a stable individual, really career-focused. I've been described by many colleagues and family members as a bit of a workaholic because I've always loved the industry I work with We are lucky to work in an industry where I think everyone feels like a colleague, whether it's a business partner, a distributor, a competitor, or even people we work with in our own companies. I think we unite well as an industry. And I think that's probably why I feel really comfortable to talk about this sort of stuff. And then as an individual, I'm routined. I love discipline. I've always been a really healthy individual. I thought my career was going to go into fitness at one point. I don't know how I got into mortgages. That's another story. But I've always been really, really dedicated to being fit, being healthy. And again, people describe me as a creature of habit, annoyingly so sometimes. So I do like routine and I've got my own habits. So I definitely describe myself as a bit of an all nothing type character anything I do I want to do it well otherwise I tend to not bother and I suppose my career really started to take off when I got myself into some leadership positions of of managing teams and I've taken great pride in the fulfillment of others making sure they fulfill their roles to the highest standards they can and to a degree I've always put others first in how I operate so I think about others before I do myself Outside of work, I'm a dad of three children. Two of them are in their early 20s now. And I've got a young son who's almost two. I think he's two 
in October, um, Rafi. So it'll be two in a few months' time. And I suppose rather than go into details of the life story, the, the things that have occurred in my life over the last four years, a divorce and the emotion that that brings and the impact that that has on others around me, which you know I could see and at times was hurtful. From somebody who loves stability, I've moved house five times in the last four years, sort of moving away from my matrimonial home, moved to Cheltenham, and kind of it led on to four further moves, all renting. And I've literally just bought, so I'm in my new house now, which I completed on last week. So I've got a bit of stability back in there. Had a new baby, Rafi, of course. Shortly after I was divorced, I met a loving new partner who's been diagnosed with MS, unfortunately. So again, another story in itself. And then, of course, we had the pandemic. And the pandemic has impacted so many people on so many levels. And I think when you're a person that thrives off connections with others and you get your energy from that interaction you have with others, it has been a challenge. And and particularly, I suppose, for myself, the gym's closed and all the things that that kind of bought, it was upheaval. But that's not just me, you know, and I, I think everyone felt the impact of being locked down. And then, not that I knew this at the time, but there were quite a number of undealt emotional events that happened earlier on in my life. Probably the biggest one being the death of my father when I was in my early 20s that I kind of as sometimes we do as men and I'm not just limiting that to men because I think people do this you should kind of deal with things by hiding it away tucking it away and trying to forget about it and move on rather than dealing with things as they happen and there were a number of things that I think have come to fruition now where I kind of didn't deal with things properly and, and thought I was okay and moved on so anyway, where's all this leading to? So I've always enjoyed a drink. So I'm going to talk about alcohol now. I've always enjoyed a drink socially, you know, work events, but it also, you know, outside of work, I've always been quite a social individual. And I noticed I started to drink more when I got divorced. I moved away from my home. I was renting a flat in Cheltenham right in amongst where there was loads of really good bars and restaurants, started a new life, I was going out a lot more. And when I noticed that it just got progressively worse and it has a knock on impact. So I was eating less healthy and things just generally got worse. Met my new partner, of course. So in your early days of dating, I was going out more, trying to impress her and thought I was really funny. And it kind of think things go on from there. But you know, and after a while, it just got worse and worse. I noticed that on my way home from work, I was thinking about that first can of beer as soon as I got in the door, even before I had a shower, I'd open a beer. The weight started to go on because I started to eat less healthy, drink more, started to put on weight. I was feeling sluggish, less motivated. And the biggest thing for me kind of made me an anxious person, which is a really alien feeling because I've never been anxious. I can be a nervous person. I think everyone can. And deliberately in my career, I've always put myself into situations where I'm challenging myself, I'm out of my comfort zone because I've always thought that's how you kind of grow and develop. So I've deliberately gone out of my way to make myself feel under pressure and nervous. But suddenly I had this alcohol just accentuates, I think, that and makes things worse. And suddenly I've become a really anxious individual and I had no idea how to deal with it. It was the strangest feeling. So I basically culminated into a, a very different individual to the one that people knew and probably people loved. And uh, people started to get concerned about me. And my family were very keen on me getting help to try and stop my addiction to alcohol, which progressively got worse. They tried to intervene in many different ways, but me being fairly stubborn at that moment in time thought, no, I can deal with this, I'll sort it, don't worry, it's just a blip and I'll get over it. And the more time went on, the worse it got, anxiety was through the roof. And my relationships with my family and friends definitely changed. I was hiding away from friends. 
I was becoming less reliable for family and, and upsetting them when I was drinking, thinking I was being hilarious when I was actually being really annoying and at times hurtful. And that was a time when my partner needed me probably the most because her condition itself, plus a new baby, I was fairly absent at that point. So there's many stories I can tell about if anyone's interested when we meet around some of the stuff that happened through that time. Probably not enough time to go into detail now. So my family were urging me to to get the help that I needed. It it came to a point where I thought I'd hit rock bottom. And like these things, sometimes they actually haven't. And there's more depths to to go down. And when I felt I'd hit rock bottom, my sister intervened at that point. And I remember one Sunday night, she drove me to my first AA meeting in Cheltenham. And she waited outside to make sure that I didn't leave until it had finished and then brought me home. And, And that really helped. I was going to two to three AA meetings a week, some of them virtual, but mainly it was face-to-face. And that was a big turning point for me, I think, in realising that I was an alcoholic. And at these meetings, they call them the yets. And what they meant by that was you haven't lost your family yet, you haven't lost your job yet, you haven't lost your house yet, everything you've spent your entire life building, you haven't lost it yet. But there were lots of people in the room sharing stories of where they had lost these things through alcohol addiction. And it really made me realise that I was in a bad place and that I needed to sort it out. But even then, my stubbornness kicked in thinking, okay, I admit I'm an alcoholic, but I'll sort this out myself still. I can do this because the first thing for me is acknowledging the fact that I've got a problem. So time went on a bit more. I still didn't improve. Think things were still getting worse. And from a work sense, and that's probably what people are thinking, how did you carry on working while all this was going on? And the reality was that I did. I suppose you hear of these things, you know, functional alcoholics. I did work, but I did have to bring into confidence my two direct reports, Ryan Brailsford, who is is an amazing guy, and Caroline Marakian, who also I would class as a saviour of mine, because they were having to step in and kind of take things away from me and make sure things were done more than they normally would. Normally things that I'd pick up that I was having to get them to step into. Sometimes it was the external stuff, some of the podcasts, that I was due to be on or panel debate. I was at a point where I was too anxious to do these things, which I hated. You know, I hated that feeling, but it was great to have two amazing people around me that I could trust to do that. So it kind of took the load away. But ultimately, I did feel the likelihood was that I was going to start dropping a few balls. It must have been noticeable to sort of people in the the industry I was dealing with and, and colleagues internally. And at that point, that was making things worse because, again, it made my anxiety worse. And I've always been, like I say, the most important thing for me, apart from family, is my career and my job. So I remember one Saturday I phoned my boss, Richard Spinks, who, again, an absolutely incredible individual in so many ways. But I phoned him up because I just needed to get him to understand the place I was at, how I'd got there, how I was feeling and what I was going to do about it, because I thought a problem shared, a problem halved, that's obviously a common phrase. And because I thought if I share it with him, it will help the anxiety levels to reduce, because at least he'd know. I mean, he was brilliant. I don't know whether this is funny or not. That was a Saturday, and I'd been drinking. I had to phone him back on the Sunday and repeat the conversation, because I couldn't remember everything that we talked about and how we were going to move it forward. And that's the extent that it got to, which is clearly embarrassing, quite shameful in in many respects, although I've learned to cope with the shame and embarrassment of it now. But, you know, he was phenomenal in terms of the support that he was able to give and the advice he was able to give. And how this has ended up is that my family were pretty much 
Well, they were in contact with the priory to say, you know, it was my sister. My brother um, is an alcoholic. He can't sort it out. Things are getting worse. He needs help. What are the options? And the options were to go into the priory for four weeks to get the therapy I needed because, you know, clearly I was using alcohol as a suppressant for emotion and, and to cover things up. Or I could get therapy two or three times a week at a distance virtually over a period of 10 weeks. Well, of course, the latter is what I wanted to do because I thought that's great. I can get the help I need. I can carry on working. Jobs are good and then I'll sort myself out. And this is another turning point for me is I phoned Richard Spinks again and I laid out the options to him. And for him and our HR director at the time, Greg Ingleton, it was an absolute no brainer. They said, you've got to go into the Priory, take four weeks away from work, longer if you need it, go and get the help you need and come back as, as you, you know, the person that we know. And the reason why that was so important to me is because that gave me the space to not worry about work. My job was safe. I'd been honest with them. They were being really supportive of me. And I knew that if I was to go into the Priory with that conversation with Richard in my head, that'd be one thing I don't have to worry about. And I could just focus on me for four weeks and and things that I needed to do to fix the problems. And for that, I'm hugely grateful. And that is fantastic, Paul, what, what you, you've described. You've described it with real, real honesty. Moving on to Claire, I know Paul opened up to you at, at an event and told you his story. And we can come to the amusing things you found about it, like the story about his mum and things. But did you begin to realise, especially in your position as people and culture director, uh, the responsibilities we all have in noticing traits and behaviours in others and what we should be doing about it. Thank you very much, Barrett. And can I just say how incredibly brave you are, Paul, and just sitting here listening to your story, more detail than we had when we first met, is, yeah, I'm humbled to be on this podcast with you. So thank you for letting me be part of it. Barrett, great, great question. I'm relatively new to this industry, two years into the industry, and as Paul says, I feel like I've joined a warm friendly industry full of colleagues and I think you said we unite well as an industry Paul and I couldn't agree more sitting alongside that is the work hard play hard kind of culture I feel that I'm surrounded with which suits you know my personality is to work hard I, I too love my work and I love to go out to the events and I love to have a glass of wine and so listening to your story really resonates with what can we as an industry and certainly what can I do as an employer and in my role to support individuals in our business and it's incredibly important to recognize that the pandemic has as we all know had an incredible effect on so many people and I don't think any of us thought it would last this long and it's changed the way of work for good but we've done quite a bit of research to see how we could support colleagues during the pandemic and how we can continue to support colleagues as we leave the pandemic I was looking at kind of what happened over the last couple of years and there's some fantastic research the CIPD produced 27% of people say their alcohol consumption increased as a result of the pandemic so I think we have to accept that just 30% of our colleagues may have seen their alcohol consumption increase as a result of the pandemic, yet only 33% of employers provide information on sources of support for drug and alcohol-related problems. 
So I think there's some really, really easy things we can do as employers. And I've just made a few notes of some things perhaps I think we could all be aware of. And Paul, this sits really well with your story. I think the big overwhelming message is having a supportive, inclusive culture. Paul, you felt like you could go to your line manager, your boss, you had that supportive open culture, you felt you could confide in your colleagues. So I think having that within your business, no matter how big or small, having a supportive culture where people feel they can talk in confidence, there's no judgment. Paul's talked about the shame, that there is no judgment. And I think it's really important to have a look at what that culture is within your own business. And I think it's also being aware of looking out for those cues. And you talked a lot about this, Paul. You felt that you were dropping balls. You knew you were dropping balls. And I think it's very hard when we're working in a virtual world and having split working from home, working in the office. If you're managing people remotely, working remotely, People on this call will be working full time remotely. How can you look for those cues? And I think it's just taking a moment to recognise, is somebody doing different working hours? Paul, you talked about the times that you would be having a drink as soon as you got in from work. How was that impacting you? Then were you starting a bit later the next day? What are someone's appearance like? Are they no longer putting their camera on screen? Are they increasing perhaps days that they're taking sick? Have colleagues noticed anything? And Paul, you know, we've talked about this, about what were the triggers that your colleagues saw? And I think you shared with me a story of they didn't know which Paul was going to turn up. And I think that's really easy when you're in that face to face. So if you're working remotely full time, make the effort to try and go for a walk with a colleague, particularly if they're displaying some signs if they were a creature of habit like Paul and all of a sudden that's changed, if they used to be super reliable and things have started to change, there's different small cues you can notice, I think, online and in person that you just take a moment to think about. Is there a colleague that you perhaps are thinking, actually, yeah, they have started to drop the ball. All of a sudden they are on your radar. But just checking in with somebody and asking them if they're okay. Are they really okay? Not just the start of a call on a Monday morning, hi, how was your weekend, everything okay? Yeah, great. Are you okay? I think just asking and having this supportive, inclusive culture. And I also think there's an element around there's lots and lots of extra support out there that's available to employers and colleagues. So we've just gone through a program of training 15 of our colleagues to become mental health first aiders. Paul, you alluded to the fact that you felt you turned into alcohol as a crutch was off the back of periods of being unstable with the changes you mentioned, but also some historical emotional issues and challenges that you'd had to face. And we shared those common themes and stories when we met. Have a look at what's available through mental health first aid training. Most employers have an EAP support line. They can support you unbelievably. And the provider that we use, they have specific four-week programs to support people who have alcohol or drug support. They provide support for alcohol and drug abuse. Signposting, there's lots and lots of information. Make it easy to signpost colleagues through to AA meetings, whether that's virtual or in person. And invest in some training for your managers and leaders 
But I go back to where I started about having a supportive and inclusive culture that it's okay to say, I'm not doing well and asking a question and really asking somebody if they're doing okay. That's, I think, where we can all take a small step forward to perhaps look at what we can do to support colleagues who may be in the same situation as Paul was. Thank you, Clara. Those are very, very good initiatives. Going back to you now, Paul, can we just fascinatingly carry on with your story? So you're now at the Priory. Can you talk us through very briefly about the process of recovery and some of the interesting things that you learned and maybe some of the tools that you still use in order to make sure that you remain free from the addiction of alcohol and all the nasty things that comes with it. Definitely. And I think Claire was right in terms of appearance. So my partner and my sister dropped me at the Priory. I mean, I said to myself at that point, this enough, you know, this this experience of being dropped somewhere for four weeks, knowing that I'm going to miss my baby son and my partner was enough for me to get over my problem. That was in my head. But they were dropping off somebody who was just not Paul Adams, nervous, anxious, bloated, grey, because my skin was grey at that point, sweaty. It wasn't an attractive sight, I can tell you. And it was going into a very strange environment, something that I didn't really have an expectation of. It was just very, very odd. The staff and the nurses, fantastic. But it was just odd. You see, they take you to the room, and the first thing that happens is that, you know, they would take your shoelaces off of you. They take the drawstrings out of your joggers, which was fine at the time because I was carrying enough weight for my joggers to stay up. But the longer I stayed there, the more weight I lost. My joggers started to fall down. After a while, I had to ask for one of my laces back. And at that point, I think they thought I was safe enough to be able to give me my laces back, which is good. But, you know, all your razors, deodorant, everything's taken away from you. Obviously, in a nice way, it's not as bad as I've made it sound there. And for the four weeks I was there, there was therapy every single day for four hours, at least four hours, sometimes five, because we had evening sessions as well. And that included the weekends. And these were therapy sessions that were mainly group, but also one-on-one. So I suppose for me, it gave me that personal connection back, because whilst I I was in there with people who were really different to me. They were a cheesemaker, a student. There was a retired guy well into his mid-80s, I think. He looked and sounded like David Attenborough, a lovely guy, but he kept falling asleep through most of the therapy. We had to explain to him what happened afterwards. And there was a couple of entrepreneurs, software developers. There was a landscape gardener who I've developed a really good friendship with him. So I suppose for me, instantly, I started to make these personal connections, which is important for me. You know, it's where I get a lot of my sort of enthusiasm and energy from. But these therapy sessions were they're very focused on things like dealing with emotions, dealing with a crisis, dealing with a trauma, managing anxiety and stress. So it was a lot of positive psychology, CBT, a lot of stuff around self-soothing. So what you can do to actually calm yourself down or to think differently when you need to and staying grounded. So it was very rational, emotive behavior type stuff delivered through lots of different therapists. And there was like a timetable. So you handed a timetable that you're going to stick to for four weeks lots of case studies, lots of models, you know, so they use lots of models to help you to remember certain things and that you could kind of embed it into your way of thinking and your way of life when you came out of the Priory. Because they always said, and then they said this a lot, literally in every therapy session, is that whilst you think it's hard work being here and and it's a strange environment, your hard work starts when you get out because you've got to take on board what we're trying to teach you and you've got to put it into action. So it's like being back at school, but in a nice way. I suppose the two key things for me that I took away from it was how important diet and nutrition is to your mental well-being. I've always associated it with 
you know, your sort of well-being and, and kind of your body in that way, but never really about your mind. And every week there was a lengthy session around diet and nutrition where they broke it down into very simplistic terms to enable you to understand why. And I will sort of use the term, you are what you eat, but it's actually you are what you absorb. So they talked a lot about your gut bacteria and things that you can do to improve it because that's really the engine of where everything happens. They talked a lot about fibre and the, the, the level of fibre in your diet is so important. And omega-3, omega-3 was probably the biggest. So where I live now, I've got a little Sainsbury's around the corner and they have to stock their shelves up every day practically of tinned fish because I've kind of emptied them most weeks of their tinned mackerel. A point to note here on omega-3 and tinned fish, you do get it in mackerel and sardines, but there's no omega-3 in tinned tuna because of the processing thing. This is fantastic kind of insight into some of the things that it doesn't matter what size your business is that you could really do to support colleagues and employees and there's so many resources out there to help you build well-being programs and calendars and investing in your people and it doesn't take a lot of money it takes a little bit of time a little bit of thought and a little bit of planning around communicating but there's plenty of businesses you can support local businesses as well as national businesses in terms of helping educate. So for me, we're talking about education. I know we're talking about health and well-being, educating people about diet and fitness. I'm of the age where I was brought upon the kind of you have to eat your five portions of veg a day. I know it's much more than that now. And I just think there's some real things we can do as employers and as businesses and colleagues to help educate one another. There's plenty of resources out there. There's lots of well-being initiatives. And as you say, Paul, it links back to this healthy mind, healthy body. It's all linked, all linked, which is why I made reference to the mental health first aider training, because it invariably is linked. I thought I had a good diet before my problem started, but even that wasn't as good as it is now because of what I've learned. And I just cannot say enough what a difference I think the diet and nutrition's made. In that first week in the Priory, that's when a lot of the medication stuff happens. And they give you medication, and, and it's vitamin-based, really, because they're trying to get your body back to a certain level that it needs to be, because after a long period of alcohol, you haven't got the right vitamins, and my cholesterol was high, my vitamin D levels in my blood was low so no wonder I was feeling a bit under the weather or not myself but they gave three jabs of this really high intensity vitamin concoction which I think the the rich and famous go and buy these things because it helps them look glowing and all those sorts of things I had it for free and it worked so it kind of just goes to show about that diet nutrition thing is key but the other thing and and I'll boil this down to a a very simplistic sort of uh, one-liner really because all the therapy if you boil it all down into one sentence is what you think is what you feel and then what you feel is how you behave and obviously that leads to the outcome so your mind and the choices you make and how you decide to think about something whether it be a crisis or a something is stressing you out or a, an issue is the most important thing because we always jump in generally with our feeling oh that's made me feel this way and then the rest of the action follows so a lot of the therapy was just around how would you think differently about things? And the thing they just kept saying all of the time was nothing and nobody can make you feel anxious or depressed or stressed. 
And it's true when you think about it, even though you know that there are situations that cause it, if you think about things in a different way, it changes massively the way you actually feel and behave. And there's loads of literature, YouTube clips, all sorts of things that focus on those elements, including the diet and nutrition. And yeah, if anyone wants to, it's worth having a look. What I'd like to just touch on for somebody who is quite well known for liking wine and quite often drinking a bit too much, what would you say are the self-recognition signs uh, Paul. So classically, they say you're not an alcoholic if you don't drink alcohol in the morning, but I can't believe that that's true. What was it for you that made you realise I am drinking too much or I have to have a drink? I think it was the period where I couldn't even go a day. I would have a drink on a weekend and then there might be sort of certain nights where you have certain meals, we'll open a bottle of wine and then that bottle of wine becomes two bottles of wine. And then suddenly you're at a period where it's every night and I was conscious of it again because I just knew it wasn't right and it wasn't particularly that healthy but it wasn't really impacting me in any way I wasn't feeling the way I felt last year when it started to get properly serious but I suppose that's the start it starts there and it obviously gradually finished for me in a way that I needed to get some proper help to sort it out so it just felt like I was becoming dependent upon it and I definitely was dependent upon it by the time I'd got to the Priory. Claire lots of people out there support your personal opinion about how to go about talking to someone. What would you say? So you see someone and you think, right, that's the fifth time in the last two, three weeks where they have been behaving funnily or they don't look well or they look pale or disheveled or whatever. What's the first approach? Is it just to say, are you okay? I think so, yes. And Paul and I talked about this. He kindly shared with me, you've got to be careful. Alcoholics are great liars. You've got to be careful here because there's a whole kind of way that people go to to craft excuses and put up a different image. Choose really an appropriate time and place because it's clearly a sensitive issue. When I've had to have conversations with people, I've gone for a walk. It's less confrontational. It's like, can we go for a walk? And if somebody doesn't want to come into the office, for example, if you're concerned about someone who's working from home, meet them somewhere that's neutral to them. Just say, is there a local park or a cafe we can go near you? Or I can come round for a cup of tea. Just make it quite informal, but an appropriate time and place. Asking HR to call somebody in might not be the best route. I think you have lots of people who are leaders and managers listening. It's okay. They don't have to turn to the people team or the HR team. I think it's okay. It's okay for a colleague to ask another colleague. Just make sure you do it informally. And I think I said earlier, there's got to be no judgment here. It's concern for the well-being of that person. I think it's really important to make sure that whoever's having that conversation is doing it from the right place. So I think it's informal conversation from a place of concern and well-being and just be prepared to listen and be patient. Paul's kindly shared with us his journey. There were a few Paul, forgive me, false starts. I can sort this myself. I can sort this myself. So I think if you do have a conversation with a colleague or a team member, listen and be prepared, but be patient because it's going to take some time. And I think it's a different approach. I don't want to be generalist or even sexist, 
But I think that often women are better at doing this than men are. Men tend to be solutions orientated and say, right, mate, you need to do this, this, this and this, and then you'll be fine. Maybe not be as good and as listening and empathetic and, and allow the person to come to their own conclusions rather than offering a ready-made solution, as it were. I think you're absolutely right. But I think any conversation that's linking around mental health and well-being, you've got to look at who you're talking to and understand. And I think sometimes that's why people automatically think, oh, best refer this to HR. But quite often, you know your teammates and your colleagues better and can approach it in the best way. And I think you're asking someone else to be brave as well here, aren't you? It's not nice to have that conversation and say, I'm a bit worried about you. I think it's a, are you okay? I'm a bit worried about you. But I think it's absolutely fine to say, are you sure I'm here? This is a safe space. It's raising it. It's a big, brave step for a colleague or a line manager to do. And I think it's being brave and knowing that it's coming from a place that's good. And it's just about looking out for each other as colleagues, as you said, We're an inclusive bunch in this industry. And I think you don't have to keep it within your own business if you want to confide in. Barris, I know many people confide in you. And I think there's lots of great relationships across this industry. It's okay to ask outside of your own employer for help. There's lots of fantastic people I've met in the industry. And if you feel more comfortable doing that, that's okay to do that. I think that's right, because I think what it did for me is when I shared it initially with Ryan and Caroline and then also ultimately Richard, my boss, it's like when you have a goal or an objective and you share it with somebody who also knows what you're trying to achieve, you become a little bit more accountable. And I think for me, that was it. When I shared it outside of my immediate family, I suddenly it almost emphasised the fact that I needed to sort it out. And it didn't put unnecessarily pressure on me. It wasn't that. It was just, right, these people know now. I need to sort this out for myself, but I need to sort it out for them. So I think sharing it is a good thing. And my one regret in all of this process that I've been through is that I didn't talk to somebody earlier. If I'd have forgotten about my stubbornness and thought I could sort it out myself and just literally spoke to somebody at an earlier stage, I think I'd have probably avoided the priory. But even so... It is better to talk to someone at any stage than not at all. I met stable, charming, confident Paul. I've got to ask, how long have you been sober? So it's uh, over nine months now. I think it was nine months one day last week. I was keeping a chart in my office of the days, which I've now removed because I've moved house and I I wanted to decorate my new office. But it's over nine months. I think what you've shown us very courageously, Paul, is you don't have to be on your own, especially in this industry, with all the challenges that we have, and that it's partly, as a collective industry, all our responsibility to look after everyone because it could quite easily be any of us. And that's the truth with the opportunity to drink that we all have. It could quite easily be any of us who go over the edge because of other issues we're having elsewhere. So thank you, Claire, for your insight, for your research and for your practical help. And once again, Paul, an amazing thing that you've actually done in getting better, an amazing thing you've done in joining us and discussing it on this podcast. And for anyone who's listening out there, just use Paul Adams as a guiding light to, if you are in trouble, there is a way out. Thank you both. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, make sure you share with your friends and colleagues 
and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.